Welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos, the podcast that dives deep into the world of chaotic emergencies and complex crisis management. In each episode, we'll engage with emergency managers and crisis leaders to explore the challenges that arise in times of crisis and the strategies they employ to navigate through them. From natural disasters to technical failures to human-caused events, we'll examine real-life scenarios that put crisis managers to the test. Join us as we uncover the lessons learned from past emergencies and gain insight into the complexities of crisis management. With five minutes to chaos, you'll be better prepared to face the unexpected when it strikes. Let's dive in. Hello, everybody. Steve Kerr here, your host of Five Minutes to Chaos, an unrehearsed, unscripted podcast with the goal of promoting crisis management through the raw experiences and observations of emergency managers, crisis leaders, and incident commanders who have led their teams through complex and challenging situations. I have a special guest with us today because he's not only a dear friend, but he's also a a senior uh, fire service and emergency management leader, uh, Dave Fischler, uh, and I have been working uh, on and off together for the better part of uh, probably three plus decades. Uh, so before I uh, introduce Dave and, and ask him to talk about his background, I'm going to give him a little test and see if he remembers, even though we knew each other, the first time we actually met. Sure. We were down in uh, in Orlando at the uh, disaster conference, and uh, we were sitting at poolside. You had a big scar and uh, a little entourage around you, and uh, the uh, and that's where we first really got to chat. You know, you may be right. I was thinking of uh, you had sent Jerry Howard, who is the emergency management director in New York City. Uh, a letter and you had uh, slugged in for an early morning breakfast at four world trade center, which was the Marriott hotel that, uh, that had collapsed on uh, tragically uh, on nine 11. So one of us is right. It's probably you, but uh, nonetheless, here we are decades later uh, having, having worked together uh, uh, in your capacity as commissioner of fire rescue and emergency services in Suffolk County, New York, and me in in New York City, and then us working together in a private sector. Dave, tell the the uh, the listeners uh, about your your background. Okay, uh, I have uh, started off. I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in biology, another master's in health education, and also I'm a practicing attorney up in New York, licensed in New York, where I represent uh, individuals with uh, of counsel to a firm. Uh, Rosa, uh, Hanson and Rosasco, and we represent uh, individuals, uh, fire, police, construction workers, general public, and post 9-11 injuries and illnesses. Uh, I have 29 years of career fire service experience, uh, starting as a fire inspector with town of Smithtown, and then later uh, for about 28 years with the uh, Suffolk County Department of Fire Rescue and Emergency Services. Uh, the, uh, I also have uh, 43 years volunteer experience serving as chief of, chief of department uh, for the St. James Fire Department in, in Suffolk County. 
Uh, she is when I was at, uh, with Suffolk County Fire Rescue. My last 10 years, I served as commissioner, which is the department head position, and had uh, numerous incidents uh, that really made national and international news uh, that, um, you know, I was challenged with. Let's uh, let's set the the picture for what we're talking about. Describe Suffolk County, New York, where it is, uh, population, some of the threats and risks, uh, sort of the geography. It's because it's a very diverse and interesting place. Sure, uh, Suffolk County is the tip of Long Island. Uh, we're the border of Suffolk County, the western border is approximately 30 miles from the New York City border. Uh, Nassau County is just to the west of us and east of New York City. Uh, well, we're part, considered really part of a metropolitan re, you know, regional area. Uh, we're 912 square miles. Uh, it's a long island, it's 90 miles long and then maybe 10 to 12 miles wide. The uh, uh, it varies from a suburban population to a rural pop farmland type population, but that has changed uh, recently with the uh, after uh, COVID, where many people moved out uh, to the east end, which is now that becoming a more year-round uh, population. In addition, uh, it, throughout the island, but particularly within our east end areas, uh, home summer homes of the rich and famous uh we also have uh so you're talking about the hamptons of course the hamptons right and, uh, and actually now we're talking about the north Fork too with the winery areas and uh, so then uh looking at the threats we have we have Brookhaven national uh, laboratories which is a huge research facility with a uh, atom smashing capabilities uh we have the uh, Plum Island. Plum Island's off approximately a mile off our North Fork. Plum Island is the animal disease control center for the uh, United States where we have uh, various testing going on. It's a level three lab. Uh, the, uh, we have different agents there that are uh, you know, probably the only repository that we have of those within the within the uh, legally within the United States. Uh, we have research, major research facilities at Stony Brook University, uh, which is uh, a huge uh, complex of uh, sciences in particular uh, in University Hospital. We have the Long Island Railroad, which is, ends up being the largest commuter railroad in the United States you know, with trains going hourly uh, year 24-7 uh, into New York City on uh, stops along the way, uh, major manufacturing corporations, uh, some with radiological um, uh, components in terms of their manufacturing. Um, and we, we used to be a big aerospace uh, community, the aerospace community, being uh, Grumman and Republic. And obviously we remember Grumman as one of the lunar modules developers, uh, but they're no longer with us in the county. 
Uh, we have a large wildland area called the Pine Barrens, uh, which has always, uh, uh, throughout my career, has always had major significant fires, but none larger uh, than the 1995 wildland fires. And, uh, you know, with uh, three sides of the county surrounded by water, while we don't have any major ports, we do have a lot of uh, boating population and a lot of commercial fishing going on. I remember studying uh, hurricanes when I was doing emergency management in New York, and a hurricane called the Long Island Express comes to mind. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, 1935? 39. 39. And, uh, and I, 35. I, but you and I did not, were not around at that point. Well, some people will probably say they saw us both there, but uh, yeah. you, know, you know how that goes. Um, worth the read for the listeners a little historical research it hurricanes weren't named yet in 1930 uh in the 1930s uh the storm cut new uh geography in the east end of long island uh and passed over long island which as as dave mentioned there are two forks there's the north fork and the south fork separated by Peconic Bay. This is still all Suffolk County. So they're pretty narrow. So the damage was 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 disastrous, but it wasn't as robust as it was in Rhode Island and Connecticut. Because once the storm went over the north fork of Long Island into the Long Island Sound, re-energizes and then strikes uh, Rhode Island and Connecticut with, with catastrophic results. So that that's just a, a, a bit of a... Uh, a snapshot for for what you were responsible. Montauk, the Montauk Lighthouse, uh, on a clear day, you can see London from Montauk. Laughing yeah. and joking, of course, but I've heard that silliness before. But it's it's gorgeous out there. It's ab absolutely uh, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, so uh, I recall a few major emergencies that that we did together. Uh, let's talk about some, some crisis events. What what's what's top of mind? Okay, uh, obviously the most significant I think throughout my throughout my career was the flight uh, TWA flight eight hundred uh, explosion that occurred July seventeenth, nineteen ninety six. Um, we've never seen the likes of that anywhere in this country. Uh, it was an aircraft, a 747, bound uh, overseas, had departed uh, JFK Airport, 230 souls aboard, which exploded approximately 13,000 feet in the air and approximately 10 miles offshore. Uh, that night, I, I was out in uh, at, at a fire chase meeting in uh, Amityville. The initial call I got from my dispatch center was a report of a barge that blew up uh, out, in, out in the ocean. People were observing uh, fire out on the, uh, significantly out on the ocean. Uh, thereafter, we got a second call I got from my dispatch as we're talking. Uh, we were notified that uh, a 747 was missing off radar. Um, while we're close to JFK and the, we have two uh, major air control centers in the New York area, 
you know, one in Nassau and one in Suffolk, uh, that plane had already been handed off to Boston Center for its overseas trip. Uh, Boston so so I didn't, so I didn't know that. that that's new information. You know, you learn something new every day, right? So right. New York Center is uh, somewhere in Islip, uh, right, in, in Suffolk County, near, uh, near MacArthur Airport. And uh, I had assumed all along that that aircraft was under the control of New York Center. No, it wasn't. That was one of the difficulties in finding out what happened because when Boston lost it off radar, they didn't know who to call. They knew where, knew where the last point was and was obviously south of Long Island, south in Suffolk County, but they didn't have any phone numbers for people down here to call us to let us know that they were missing the aircraft. That took about, we estimate about 10 minutes to get that notification. Meanwhile, we were taking 9-11 calls of people uh, reporting explosions, fire out in, out in the ocean, but nobody really knew what it was. Uh, and uh, until we had confirmation from uh, Boston Center that the 747 was missing. At that point, I uh, started to respond. Yeah, we immediately got on the telephone with our county execs uh, representative uh, that I, you know, so telling him I needed the county exec to respond. Also, I got uh, started coordinating. I uh, ordered all my personnel in uh, to the EOC, so then we could assign them. And most of those people did move out then to the site because we were unsure what, where we were going to set up a command post. Uh, initially, it was going going to be. Uh, Smith's Point, but then later decided to be at the Coast Guard station was in East Mauritius, which was probably a good location for it to be uh, in that is a secured area and uh, it had a better access uh, both wise. Uh, there's an inlet there and we have the Coast Guard boats capable of coming in good size boats. So that was a good place for us to set up. Uh, the command post, and uh, that's what it was occurring. Uh, we, we had all our resources working. The police were notified. We had uh, uh, two police detectives come into the OC and then invent that, you know, take any calls from any family or any um, uh, relatives or anybody who were the last ones to see people on the plane. So we could then they could get information about. What, what, the, what they were wearing so we could start looking, putting together you know, information to identify people, not knowing if we had any survivors or not. Once we knew what the, it was at 13,000 feet in the aircraft explosion, we did not expect uh, survivors, but we always have to think that that's our first uh, uh, priority. So that whole, Next two three days was we looked at doing rescue operations that if we you know were able to find any survivors. Unfortunately, we did not. 
Okay, so let's let's go back to the uh, to the to the crisis management construct because you did some interesting stuff there, and then I think we'll come back to to, to some of the tactical stuff. And thank you for bringing up TWA eight hundred. I wasn't sure if you were going to discuss that. Uh, Steve Hopte, uh, friend and colleague, uh, also spoke about TWA eight hundred in one of the earlier episodes because he was involved in the development of a statewide mass fatality plan, and uh, uh, he and his team from New Jersey State Police Emergency Management were brought in uh, to support those efforts down the line. So you had both uh, an EOC, the county EOC stood up, and you had the uh, command post down at uh, Coast Guard Station Mauritius. Correct. And, okay. So um, and we also reached out and in, on my neighboring County Nassau County, uh, that the EOC director at that time, the emergency management director, was a police sergeant, uh, Kevin Pleasance. You remember Kevin? Sure, I know. Sure. Kevin was great. Yep. Who actually called me and said, Listen, I've never seen or experienced anything like this. Could we, um, uh, could I come out to observe how, how you handle things, which is the right thing to do? Request to come out before just showing up. Um, the, um, I said, sure, Kevin, no problem. He came out, you know, when he got out there, I uh, jokingly said to him, uh, Kevin, I'm sorry, you can't, uh, observe. He goes, oh, what's the matter? I said, I need to put you to work. I need some of your emergency management people in my EOC because my people, I'm, I'm going to move out here. I want them at the command post because we have to set up a whole incident command system, uh, here and uh, but I want to just backtrack a second. One of the things that you know, you look at these events, and you know, did I fly by night? Maybe some of the things we did because this is always unusual, but we've studied other events of similar nature, uh, not as large scale, but other plane crashes, uh, other mass fatality ca or casualty incidents, and it would. When you study them, you think about well, how I would handle these things. So I had in my mind a game plan that I knew I would implement if I ever had to implement a large-scale uh, incident such as this. What was interesting was, well, about a mile from the scene where we were, where the command post was being set up, when I responded in, I had you no know, unmarked vehicle, lights and sirens, but I had a Suffolk County police officer who had already locked down the area. Uh, he stopped me and because I had lights going and you know red lights and siren and uh, didn't care. He wanted my identification uh, before I was allowed to proceed, which was absolutely phenomenal. I think that was good. When I got on site, we had a sergeant in a police car. Are we uh, talking about the Coast Guard station? Coast, at the Coast so, Guard station. So this is the evolving command post. Yep. Uh, his sergeant was in a police car. Then their child sergeant was Herc Ambrose, who I'm going to credit with really setting the tone for the operation because he had, you know, we didn't have computer aid dispatch and all the stuff we had today, but he had his Hackstrom's manual out. And as units became available to him, as he requested them, he had set up a perimeter shutting down road networks a mile out. So we didn't have a repeat of other incidents that have occurred in the country where uh, there was no perimeter control and 
people showed up in blocked roads with their vehicles and so on. So, um, well, well I, 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 actually, that happened right on Long Island. If you we're talking about Avianca, yes, which was probably ten years before. Uh, I can't remember years. It was in the eighties. Uh, I, I, you know, I'd never thought of the the the, the correlations between Avianca and TW eight hundred. Avianca was the crash of a large aircraft seven oh seven, I believe, on final approach to Kennedy. Uh, ran out of fuel, crashed on the north shore of Nassau County, up in Oyster Bay area, up in Oyster Bay, and there oh, was like Nassau. a single road. Go ahead, take it from there. Yeah, mo multiple single roads leading into it. And, uh, you know, when we, uh, we uh, at that, that event, um, we put units together in this staging area within Suffolk County available to them to, uh, we already had some uh, of our county units involved through a mutual aid program, but then we had resources that we put together and, uh, then notified Nassau County, these are our available resources, um, and, and we're in a staging area. We didn't go uninvited in, uh, so uh, then they said, okay, this is what we additionally we need, and uh, then we moved up uh, those resources. But the road network getting in there really was uncontrolled, and, you know, the um, cars, you know, they're parking at different angles. Some of them, you know, are do gooders and want to help out. Uh, but you know, it, it did create a uh, problem for all the emergency uh, first responders. So uh with TWA, the tone was set really right by that Suffolk County police sergeant and uh set that whole um tone for how well the operation went. When I got on scene. I met the police sergeant. He told me uh, that his uh, one of his bosses, the duty officer, the uh, inspector, was up in the uh, communications component uh, area of the Coast Guard station. That's where we met, and we started then developing um, our initial responses. What you know? What do we have? What are we looking at? Getting information, getting intel from the. Coast Guard boats that were already responding out there uh, at 10.30 that evening. Now, this occurred about 8.30 or 10.30 that evening. We had uh, in the, um, I'm not going to say in the auditorium, but it wasn't an auditorium, but it was a large room of, you know, a significantly large area in the Coast Guard station. We had our first meeting in which I uh, ran again it was stepping up on a uh, brand new coffee table they got and uh i want to know who was there we want to record who was at this meeting what agencies they represented and what did they bring to the table that we could use at that point we also indicated that we were going to operate under the uh, national uh well there wasn't NIMS didn't exist at the time but we were going to operate under an instant command system uh, that, uh, they say many of the responders, fire, EMS, uh, law enforcement had a concept. Many of the uh, federal agencies, it was new. Coast Guard always operated their, you know, oil spill 
components and some of their emergencies under the instant command system, but other federal agencies had no clue what that instant command system existed. And that was uh, a, a problem that, you know, has since been resolved most of the time um, that, you know, the federal government now uses the ICS system or NIMS. And uh, so that was, you know, probably one of the impetuses to have that, that occur at the federal level that, you know, NIMS became a requirement, you know, for all first first responders and anybody responding to these type of incidents. I think you were also in a unique situation because your, your conventional emergency management structure at the county level, and I'm of the opinion, and I've said this on, on, on other episodes, that county emergency management directors really are the traffic cops of emergency management they they reside in a place between local jurisdictions and the state and certainly the state is the you know the entrance ramp to the federal to the federal government you were in a unique position because you were both the county emergency management director and the county fire commissioner so the eoc reports to you uh, on a daily basis, the or your, the staff of the EOC reports to you, so it wasn't something that had to be um, um, that had to be thought about, or where the structure had to be created. Where uh, take uh, take a situation where there's a a third a third party emergency management agency. You are reporting to a, a county board of commissioners, and you have a fire department head and a police department head, and and you know those agencies report in from their command posts. Here they reported to you naturally. Correct. And uh, that was the system that occurred in uh, 1984 when we consolidated uh, departments. And uh, that was one of the things that was pushed that you know, emergency management before that was the Office of Civil Defense, uh, which I think most emergency management offices were civil defense offices initially. Um, and uh, they created the Office of Emergency Management. And, in, uh, in 1984, and uh, that uh, during the consolidation, they put it in within the Department of Fire, Rescue, and Emergency Services, uh, which was also created in 1984. Prior to that, it was called the Department of Fire Safety. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was good thinking on behalf of the county to, uh, you know, start looking at those issues and how can we have a better system to respond to any of these incidents that may eventually occur within our county. Um, right. I, I was very fortunate that during my career, particularly the 10 years as commissioner, uh, I worked for a county exec who understood emergency responders. He was an attorney, Bob, Bob Gaffney was the county exec, but he, he was also uh, worked uh, as an FBI agent uh, in his younger years. And uh, so he understood what needed to be done. And uh, between myself and the police commissioner, basically gave us uh, free reign to do what we had to do. Basically, he said, let's just do the right things for everybody. Okay, so what uh, is the, the what, families, what, but the victims, you know, and so on. What does a command structure look like? And and then we'll and then we'll we'll move away from command because I want to talk about some creative stuff. What well, so what were the real challenges, and how you and this 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 complex team that you pulled together responded responded to those? So are we? We're at the command post. 
that is in in, in the Coast Guard Station Santa Mariches. You have a uh, unified command, is there, or is there a single incident commander? Is, right. We had a unified command. Uh, what was interesting was that um, the physical structure of the Coast Guard Station did not, it's a smaller building and did not really lend itself to the number of people that would have to be in a full command structure. And that became a uh, somewhat a little problematic. Uh, but we had 18 mobile command posts come in uh, and we were able to group them all together so that uh, we had access just by walking out of one door of the mobile command post to another if we needed some uh, information. Uh, we had daily meetings. Uh, uh, the uh, chief, uh, at that time, chief fire marshal, who later became chief fire rescue services under in the county. Um, he, Warren Horst, which was actually a dynamic guy, uh, Warren was able to uh, ran those 6 a.m. meetings in which we went over the IAP that was developed over the night for the uh, next day. And then again in the evening, we went through another uh, uh, debriefing and planning session and uh, where the agencies were, what we're going to do that day, the next day, and uh, work along those lines. Um, you know, we also had a look at things. One of the things that uh, concerned me the most, uh, not, and I, I missed it, I think most of us missed it, is that after the first night, um, we had people go, emergency responders who were on site, go home, we believe, some of them with baggage, you know what I mean by that is that um, they saw things and we didn't have a debriefing area or an area for them to uh, wind down. Uh, that changed later and, uh, you know, uh, the next day we were able to put up a, a tent area away from everything uh, that first responders had to go through before they left at the end of their work period, uh, just so that you know, they had somebody to talk to that could get a little refreshments, wind down, and uh, look at that, you know, that issue. So, uh, you know, we probably should have done that the first night, start that process. Uh, but there were so many things going on with, uh, saying our medical examiner who had planned for these type of events. We had uh, Chuck Wethley was the medical examiner. Uh, Bob Golden was his, one of his top aides. And uh, they were just, they had a plan already in place and had a disaster response plan for their operations, as well as they did regular drills on handling mass fatalities. Was the New York City ME involved in that medical examiner? I, I, I seem to recall them some. Being no, they his... weren't. Uh, you know, they asked, you know, uh, initially the decision was made, you know, we're keeping them in Suffolk. Uh, there was some uh, issue. Somebody said, you know, let's move them to New York City. Uh, but no, we kept them in Suffolk and we were able to, uh, what was one of the things I most pleased about uh, was that we were able to identify, it took us about a year, but through DNA analysis, we were able to identify all 230 
people on board and have some type yeah. of remains returned to the families. Hasn't been done before. I remember um, being asked, um, probably by Jerry Hauer, uh, yeah, uh, to uh, gather up uh, supplies for the sampling. And maybe that's where I'm thinking the ME was involved. I must have gotten the equipment from the New York City ME, brought it out to the Family Assistance Center, and the families were coached on how to provide hair samples and toothbrushes and, and stuff like that. All very right. tragic, but critical to talk about because these are the the little nuances that 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 make uh, a, you know a, a crisis management um, operation uh, you, you know successful in a way you're able to to overcome overcome right. these challenges. Uh, the lot of mentioning you know, I mean, a lot of these people on board were foreign foreigners, uh, foreign nationals uh, going home um, to Israel, to France, and some other countries. And uh, one of the things our law enforcement did, I mean, we had a whole law enforcement section, uh, which involved uh, federal and state and local law enforcement personnel. Uh, they were able to coordinate getting people's um, toothbrushes, hair combs, but from overseas. So they had the police agencies going to people's apartments or homes and getting their personal items uh, at that point so that we had could establish a DNA database. Uh, what was interesting was, was actually good, again, because of counting Zach Gaffney saying, do what if you have, whatever you have to do, do, and don't worry about, you know, um, you know, monies or anything like that um so our medical examiner said that i need a uh two additional dna analyzers uh we initially had those uh we had one he had one we needed two more we ordered sixty thousand dollars a piece we ordered them so we need it now we ordered 15 uh 15 i can't remember close to it laptops you know bingo go pick them up uh the other thing is that the uh, Coast Guard station had the ability to to land one helicopter uh, and had a site, you know, a little helipad. Uh, but we had multiple helicopters coming and going, and one helicopter, you know, uh, one area for one helicopter didn't make it. Within 24 hours, uh, I talked to our commissioner of uh, public works, Charlie Barther, who, uh, you know, I had to, we developed a plan and he implemented it to build a helipad for five helicopters. So we had a landing area and then we could move a helicopter into a parking area. Uh, this allowed uh, federal and state agencies and local agencies to come in with their helicopters. Um, to, to because we're working at sea, uh, it was uh, really uh, beneficial. We did that within 24 hours, built it, had it approved uh, through state uh, environmental issues because we're in the wetland areas and by the FAA. Um, one of the things, and I, I think I know you and I laugh about it now, we had uh, first night, we had a, a gentleman in uniform uh, military uniform, 
uh, jump in a uh, fire chief's car and say, I have to get in there. He, he was brought in and for about two days, he landed helicopters uh, as a, uh, you know, he had had all the right moves in terms of uh, guiding helicopters in until one of our helicopter pilots, Suffolk County police officer, who's also a reservist in the military and flied, you know, uh, was flying for the military, um, knows that he had army emblems and air force emblems on the same uniform. Well, so he, he said, something's wrong here. The guy was uh, an imposter. And I remember that was Colonel Williams. It's a classic. It's a classic story that's told often. Uh, Steve Hopte uh, spoke of, of that of that story as well, and uh, uh, you'd be happy to know it's completely consistent. And uh, I remember uh, Billy Vorlicek, uh I think, was also out on the ground. Uh, Bill was uh, 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 a colonel with the New York State uh, Army uh, National Guard at the time, and I believe he was he was out. Uh, on the scene coordinating on behalf of uh, the guard and I, I remember him him telling me the story as well uh so was he removed and, and arrested this guy i mean it, uh, it, it he was it, removed the fbi took him okay he, he was with the fbi about four hours and then they uh, removed him from the site but you know no arrest was made you know what after that he uh in, became another imposter as a physician and uh, he held himself out as a physician and was working in some medical field or something. And, which uh, which begs the question why he he wasn't arrested. Okay, right. um, wow, so many creative things, and you know, there are so many corollaries to stuff that that I've been involved in. Uh, I you know, and the and the lesson is, and we'll come back to to lesson lessons learned later, but. I think one key takeaway I, I want to mention is as as much as there's an incident command system, there still needs to be policy level decisions and having a policy group with policy level people in it is critical uh, to make decisions. You were able to go to your upline and secure the approval to buy DNA uh, sample uh, uh, machines, uh, create the DNA database and buy the laptops and, and you were able to through... Uh, yeah, you know, mission assigning an agency to build a landing zone. You know, it's not unlike the scenario I experienced with West Nile fever in, in New York City. We needed to build a landing zone in the marsh areas in North Queens. And uh, we had New York City DOT build the landing zone for a couple of helicopters. And uh, that same incident, uh, no commercial aircraft would fly the human blood samples to the entomology lab in Fort Collins, Colorado. And I needed uh, $50,000 approval uh, to fly private air carrier. And uh, we had command post vehicle, like you discussed earlier. And uh, in the, uh, we had command post and a command post vehicle in North Queens. A deputy mayor was, was on the bus. And, uh, you know, I approached uh, Jerry, and uh, who's the OEM director and the mayor. And I, I, I described the situation, got the approval right there to spend the money. And we, cause we had to get these samples to, to the lab. So yeah, it's, it's really, it's really about being creative, but really, you know, knowing where to go to get those executive decisions, yeah. uh, executive decisions is, made. Go ahead. One thing I think is important. I'm a firm believer in relationship building, oh, uh, because absolutely. you need that, uh, Prior to the incident, 
when people showed up, show us, and this goes to any scene, if you don't know who they are, you have a high level of distrust, a low level of trust. But if you have a relationship uh, with your counterparts and uh, within the uh, you know, general vicinity or within the state and some of the federal agencies that are involved in emergency management, uh, if you know the players, when they do show up uh, and come onto your scene, you now have a high level of trust and a low level of distrust. And so it's so important to have relationships uh, and be involved outside your own little, little uh, you know, jurisdiction within your, outside your jurisdiction. Another thing that we did early on based on what happened in other events, we had uh, emergency units come from outside our county responded in uninvited. And one of the things we did was set up a, a clearing area. So when they came up to a uh, traffic control post that was uh, limiting access, they were directed to the East Mauritius Firehouse and East Mauritius Fire Department, as well as East Mauritius Ambulance did a phenomenal job in supporting this operation because it was within their response areas. Uh, so we set up a uh, clearing place within those uh, at the firehouse and those units was directed there. And we had no, who, why are you here? What do you bring to the table? Why are you here? Um, do we need you? Most of the times we had said, thank you. We appreciate it. Have a cup of coffee, you know, and uh, either stage here or, you know, you could go home. We don't need you. You know, I, I was the uh, mutual aid coordinator for the first bombing of the World Trade Center. Right. I arrived on the scene a couple hours at, after the incident. We were probably 250 patients in. At the time I got there with a crew of supervisors I grabbed from, uh, I was up in Queens at the time, and uh, a similar situation. So we had EMS units coming in from Pennsylvania, Connecticut, uh, pretty far out. We did put a lot of them to work. We and we actually got the uh, New York City medical director over the paramedics to issue uh, standing orders for all home protocols because we did. Unlike unlike nine eleven, tragically the the first bombing of the World Trade Center, we did have a, a high patient count. We had over a thousand patients, uh, and we you know so we had treatment transport operations, and so we we did put a lot of them a lot of them to work. But yeah, we we cleared them. We didn't, you know, we didn't request them. We didn't have mutual aid protocols with, uh, with, with Pennsylvania and and Connecticut. We had mutual aid protocols, well, with Nassau and Suffolk County, and uh, uh, Jersey City and Newark. And uh, you know, we had used by 1993. We had used them a few times. I remember activating mutual aid for train wreck uh, in Brooklyn, and we had some Jersey City units respond. So kind of like that. Right. And actually, based on our relationship. Going back to what you talked about, West Nile, I remember getting a phone call from you saying, uh, you guys were the sentinel cases out in Suffolk County. So we were able to get our expert who came in to help you initially that first night when you had your first reported cases. Yeah, I, uh, I, I know exactly. Mosquito collections. I know exactly who you're talking about. And you also had, uh, you had a contract with a vendor that did uh, aerial 
uh, deployment of right. insecticide. Right. And we asked under our informal mutual aid handshake, you know, you spoke about a relationship building. I call that Rolodex management. I mean, today it's, I call it cell phone management also, mm -hmm. but it, it really was a matter of, 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 of knowing each other and our capabilities. I don't think we had a formal, like, like downstate consortium, but we involved each other, meaning Nassau, Suffolk, New York city, the five boroughs in New York. And, and, you know, some of the, uh, some of the Jersey uh, cities along the Hudson river in each other's exercises and, and planning programs, especially where we shared rail infrastructure and, and, and commuting population stuff. So it came to something like this, like you said, we really all did know each other. Right. And that's, you know, and so it, it's so important to do it. And then we build on those relationships where, uh, you know, uh, we could, we could rely on, uh, you know, each other for the, for the support. I know that that always worked and, uh, I'm a firm believer in that. Um, you really need to reach out beyond your area, but meet and know the people that are responsible at the state, local, uh, and federal levels. You know, um, I, I just want to make mention that 1996 was not a, a great year for aviation. Uh, to, on uh, an episode uh, 16, which will drop shortly, Bill Johnson, uh, former emergency management director, Palm Beach County, uh, discusses the May 11, 1996 crash of value jet 592 in the Everglades and some of the complex, the complexities of, of that event. I think I think the listeners will find some comparisons between what, what you've described and what Bill will describe in his story. He has a fantastic story to tell. And um I don't I don't believe it was it might have been 97, but uh, there were two other maritime uh, aviation accidents. Uh, I was involved in Swiss Air 111, Swiss Air, Swiss Air Flight 111 also went down in the Atlantic Ocean uh, after departure from Kennedy, eerily very similar to to uh, to the TWA accident. And I was involved in uh, in the Family Assistance Center. Uh, activities uh, at uh, at Kennedy Airport, uh, working with uh, you know the various mental health agencies, human service agencies, Port Authority, police, of course, and that was just uh, another another tragedy. And then um, I want to say in 1999, Egypt Air 96 right. takes off from uh, from Kennedy Airport and uh unwittingly uh, crashes off the uh, Massachusetts coast. Yeah, Nova Scotia. Was it that far north? Yeah. And that was believed to be possibly um, a suicide uh, incident by by one of the by or or both pilots. And it's just so it was kind of a a, a a sad time in aviation. But the fact that ValueJet and TWA was so close, and some of the stories are so similar, is just is it, something to note. So I would encourage the listeners to you know listen to your. Um, uh, story a couple times and and then listen to bill johnson's as well yeah. before we start wrapping up dave can you talk about what went on in the hangar post crash and was did you have any involvement in that or was uh, that all well we you know, did ntsb no, we, at that point right it was uh, uh, well, actually it was i remember fbi being involved uh, jim kalstrom and the guys 
Right, yeah, but it was still an S NTSB was still lead agency because no determination was made. Uh, they had not eliminated all other causes. And where was uh, the hangar? You know, you want to eliminate all other causes um, before you think to say, well, this then must have been a criminal act um, that didn't occur. So the NTSB maintained the lead agency status and they rebuilt as it was a significant undertaking I mean, 120 feet below surface um and just going back to the initial response we have multiple uh dive rescue teams in suffolk county but we did not use them because you know we had a lot of boats doing surface search but we couldn't 10 miles down the ocean our teams were not equipped to do multiple gas um diving you know after a certain level you need the uh, uh, combination gases within your breathing we were just using straight air so they were limited and could not go down to the depths <laughs> and but taking those those uh pieces of the wreckage and bringing them up was took over months and months uh and then moved them to a hangar at grumman aerospace in Calverton and really recreated that, built that aircraft um, in uh, seating where they, you know, outer shell and the likes, and were able to look at a lot of the components, you know, one to look for um, anything that would be indicative of an outside or any type of criminal type explosion or anything. Uh, and similar to what we did at the ME's office, where we did autopsies, even though the families did not want autopsies done on fam on their loved ones because of religious uh, objections, uh, we had explained that we are looking for any type of components that may indicate that this was a criminal act, uh, which we didn't obviously did not find any of that, but uh, it became just more of a support uh in the reconstruction i mean uh, i had trouble with jigsaw puzzles so i know i couldn't do that uh, but they they had all the experts in ntb ntsb was absolutely fantastic to work with because they um like they said no we want part of your people to be part of our team and so they they were able to uh, we were able to do that so you were in a support role at that point and was calverton yeah right right Okay. Um, okay. Conspiracy theories, final cause. So uh, I know, you know, just from reading the reports that people report seeing uh, a streak of light heading toward the aircraft before it, it went down in the ocean. Some people say it was a missile. I actually know people, we probably both know, uh, were out fishing and claimed they saw a missile launch into the into the sky, take the aircraft down. Uh, I don't, I don't refresh me if if I'm recalling this right. That was um, never proven to be the cause, and it was uh, partially empty fuel tank with a, a wire that sparked. Right. They had the uh, final determination by NTSB was a uh, based on the trip that the aircraft was going to make 
they did not feel it was necessary to have a full or have a, a center fuel tank have fuel in it. But yeah, I mean, they've used in the past. So you had residual fuel with a lot of fumes. <coughs> the aircraft uh, has wiring the way it was built, had wiring going through that center fuel tank. Uh, and that's where they believe a short occurred, which created the explosion. Um, you know, you've read the same books I've probably read. Uh, some people are just sensationalizing it um, so that uh, the, um, I can't, you know, talk, you know, nothing makes sense um, on it. So uh, I would you know, think that it was the, you know, the explosion. There was no other reason. No one took credit for it. And, you, you know, you know, in my uh, our experiences with terrorism, there are something like that. Somebody's going to take credit for it to make a point. And uh, we've never had anybody come up taking any credit for it. Um, so that was, you know, people wanted, every, every incident, people have conjecture or want to make a name for themselves. So I just know, uh, you know, file right. all that stuff. So a year later, uh, and then I'll, I'll move into summary, um, a group of us worked on putting together memorial activities. Uh, you had people involved in that. Matt Furman and I uh, worked at from the New York City perspective. We worked with a number of uh, religious institutions. We worked with the French Embassy, and uh, we put together this 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 program that involved a number of activities, uh, well, including at the French Embassy in Manhattan and a memorial on site at, and at Santa Marich's. Uh, I'm struggling for a moment to, to try to remember who I worked with from your from your group, but uh, I, I do remember being out there and the, the families came and there were memorial services. So I think I think it started uh, probably started in Santa Marich's because it was it was daylight. And then we traveled, I think, into Manhattan and did an evening uh, memorial at, at the embassy a, a year later. And th that was that was tragic. I, you know, I came to know some of the some of the families and some of the uh, in fact, one individual is actually uh, an EMS chief in New Jersey. Uh, that was just coincidental. He's still in, he's still around, still in the business. And his sister was on a flight. And um, it's just, uh, uh, you know, I, I remember some of the some of the people we met and some of the people where we were able to to work with or to at least put on a, a respectable memorial right. and that some of the challenges were actually the international nature of it we had foreign language issues to deal with we had cultural issues to deal with and uh, uh but nonetheless the whole thing the whole package from 1996 1997 and was just you know a tragic time definitely no question about it and uh the uh dealing with the families i had the opportunity and the honor of uh, speaking last year at the 25th anniversary, uh, last year, two years ago, I can't even remember, uh, at the 25th anniversary uh, of uh, the TWA uh, incident and to the families at the memorial service that's held at Smith's Point Park and every year. And uh, the, it's, it's remarkable how many families come from all over the world back for that memorial every year. And uh, so I had the honor to represent and speak on behalf of all the first responders that occurred that night. You know, yeah. 
a beautiful story. Um, thank you for everything you did out there. You know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't on that end of the response and, uh, I did not get to see that firsthand. And, uh, every time you tell the story, I hear something new and, and learn something new. Let me go over just some highlights. Um, and is no in no particular order or order of importance. I'm just going to sort of go down the list. Uh, like most in, incidents we deal with, many incidents we deal with, the first calls may be inaccurate, and you're dealing with uh, chaotic information. Uh, initial reports indicated a barge was on fire. Shortly thereafter, there was a report of an aircraft down, and you have to try to make sense of all this. You know, sense uh, sense making is another you know, skill that emergency managers need to have to try to, uh, you know, analyze the information and, and make decisions based on what seems to be most critical, most credible. Uh, scene security and access control was critical. A lesson learned from uh, other emergencies, uh, in particular aviation events, one on Long Island in particular, the, AV, the Avianca uh, accident. Um, the... Uh, Initial interagency meeting, identifying uh, who was present, representing agencies, uh, what their interests were and what assets they were able to bring to the table. That's critical. You know, that's also a lesson that was taken to 9-11 uh, uh, every morning at, uh, I believe it was Engine 7, Truck 1 on Duane Street. There was an interagency meeting and uh, uh, it was very similar um, intent. Who's here? What are we going to do for the day? What are your assets? What are your needs? That kind of thing. Uh, it, the use of the incident command system is essential. Uh, and uh, I think you're right, 27 years later. Wow, it's hard to get my arms around that. Uh, I believe ICS has been expanded more, uh, you know, which is interesting because it was a federal government promoting it. Uh, and uh, it was the... Um, some of the federal agencies didn't know how to use it. I do remember that an executive order was issued uh, maybe 1997, 98 uh, by the governor of New York requiring that ICS be used throughout the state. Uh, I, ha I haven't thought about that particular executive order until recently. In fact, I had John Gibb on recently. We didn't talk about that, but uh, that, that was interesting. And that, that, that sort of put a bow on it and there was no more discussion. We were going to use ICS uh, to do uh, to do certain things, unified command uh, was used. Critical when you have so many divergent agencies with so many divergent uh, interests. I really like the eighteen uh, mobile command posts. So what you created, what I've called in the past, is a command post area, and it sounds like you were able to with not necessarily just house their the agencies with their individual interests, but some of the ICS structure structural components. Uh, uh, perhaps logistics section, planning section, they were able to do that. Does that sound right? Right. You know, and they, uh, you know, we had uh, uh, meetings when we had our morning and the afternoon meetings. Uh, you know, we limited it to the people who, who came in. Not every agency that was supporting it needed to be at the table, but we had, you know, the, the agencies that were the key agencies at the table. And, uh, but you know, we used different components, definitely of the ICS. Right. And 
Uh, we coordinated through our county mobile command posts, but that was with our people then coordinating with the other command posts there about what their action plans were and putting everything to one, a, one IAP. Right. So an IAP. So you did a, a daytime briefing and then sort of a late day briefing, it sounds like. And you developed uh, the overnight developed the IAP for the date for the daytime operational period. And it sounds like the daytime developed right. the IAP for the overnight operational period. Perfect. Right. And nighttime, we you know you couldn't do the diving. You couldn't do the water stuff. It just was too. Sure. Sure. Makes so sense. It was no, really limited just to uh, other aspects of, you know, 24 hours with the ME right. lab, uh, working, you know, with autopsies and uh, other support systems that we need to, to organize. So another major lesson learned, and I appreciate you speaking candidly about this, was uh, the need for um, uh, peer counseling, PTSD support. And, uh, you know, you didn't have that set up early, but the lesson learned there for the for the listeners are to consider for a, a critical event such as this, especially with the exposure that responders are going to have to sensitive things, that uh, there needs to be uh, a PTS capability. And I like the tent uh, with with refreshments uh, to, so they can get a, a you know, a, a snack and somebody to talk to on the way off the site for the day. That's, that, that sounds valuable. Um, yeah, no, and along with those lines, I mean, in that first night was we had boats coming, private boats coming in as well as, you know, Coast Guard and uh, uh, police boats and so on with bodies and body parts. And, you know, and some of these, a lot of people, emergency response never saw that many yeah. bodies and body parts. So, uh, you know, obviously, you know, that was, uh, we said, let people go home with seeing that without letting them yeah. do that debriefing or, you know, winding down period. And it's it's really great that you were able to make full, full identification through the DNA oh, yeah. sample. Oh, so. that we're very pleased. Took us a year, but uh, with the DNA analysis, we had the equipment and then the DNA from everybody on board, and that was really good. And uh, a lot of incidents we've here heard people say, you know, the emergency response. Well, we couldn't get a manifest list. I had the manifest list in my hand at ten o'clock that night who was on board that aircraft, um, you know, so that did not become, was not an issue for us. We knew it right away. That's critical, actually, getting the manifest. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you brought So, and that's a great segue into foreign nationals. We're dealing with an aircraft that was heading overseas. And, and I, I know from the work we did for the memorial that there were people from many different nationalities, as you had already mentioned, and the need to get, um, DNA samples back to the U.S. from overseas locations uh, was a, a, another critical activity that you needed to, another challenge, another complexity that you had to overcome. Uh, I, I want to make note again of the ability to make emergency purchases by getting a policy level approval. You did that. You had uh, 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 an executive in your upline you were able to go to to get the approval of of uh, of, of of uh, major costs and uh, unmet need building a landing zone for multiple helicopters. Again, a challenge overcome, finding the the agency that could do it, assigning the mission and just getting it done. Uh, you know, crisis management is 
is in my mind less about process and more about getting it done and you could backfill into the process but you if you have a you have a challenge and unmet need um figure out who can do it mission assign them to do it figure out where we're, how we're going to fund it by getting the right people involved and 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 get it done that's quite a story dave you know i i, I knew a lot of this but not all of it and I, I appreciate you coming on and uh you know you're willing to willing to discuss that i know it's not the only major incident you dealt with that there you did have the pine barren wildfires and uh and some other emergencies but um it's uh it's good stuff any any final thoughts any final words of wisdom for the listeners okay i mean the biggest one i, I was you know that was the most successful for me throughout my career was relationship building uh prior to any events you know knowing our partners that's how we worked well with within the city on 9-11 uh being able to move at 10 30 in the morning getting that call we this is what we need and we we're able to start supplying those assets similar to uh the wildfires when we reached out to new york city to get engine companies to come out uh to work with us we had already you know sad units from almost every suffolk and their sort department and uh, we still needed more units and we're able to reach out and that's all based on just again relationship building prior to those incidents so you need to be involved in local state and federal uh, agencies what their work is and who the people are that would be responsible when the time comes for handling it to help to assist you in handling anything within your jurisdiction i don't think there's an episode that we've had here on five minutes to chaos where an emergency manager hasn't said what you've just said it's 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 less about the process we could back back into the process it's about knowing who to call and where to get stuff and it's about being part of a network and as much as you know who to call and where to get stuff it's important for you to be part of someone else's network and that's how it worked uh, at that time in New York, and I can't imagine it's it still doesn't work that way. I experienced a very similar situation in Colorado, uh, where we were all very supportive of each other and we helped each other uh, during uh, major events, of which there were there were a, a number. Uh, if it's okay with you, I will put your contact. In, are you on LinkedIn? Yes. Okay. Could we? You want me to use that for your contact sure. info in the? Uh, in the show notes because some folks yeah. may have questions and i'd like them to reach wow. out um thanks dave thanks for coming on talking about twa i had a feeling that's what you were going to talk about and uh uh i'm i'm always um amazed at how much information i don't know and i appreciate your willingness to to discuss the incident discuss the complexity talk about your challenges and how you and your team overcame them I want to thank Dave Fischler for joining Five Minutes to Chaos and for sharing his uh, uh, career experience and his crisis management story. Five Minutes to Chaos drops weekly on Thursdays. Please follow us or like us on your favorite platform and set it to alert for when an episode drops. I welcome your comments or questions, which can be submitted in the comments area of the show or direct message me on LinkedIn. Until next time, embrace the chaos.
that brings us to the end of this episode of Five Minutes to Chaos. We hope you enjoyed exploring the many facets of the incident we discussed today and gained some new insights and perspectives along the way. Remember, confronting chaos is not something to be feared or avoided. It is a central crisis management role that we can learn to embrace and navigate with robust leadership and personal resilience. By embracing chaos, we can tap into our creative potential, adapt to situations more easily, and find a way to overcome the challenges of complex emergencies. I'd like to thank our guests and experts who shared their insights with us today, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found value in today's episode and invite you to continue exploring the many aspects of complex crisis management. Don't forget to subscribe to 5 Minutes to Chaos for more thought-provoking conversations and insights. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or sharing it with a friend and colleague. Until next time, embrace the chaos. Thank you.